This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. This week, our podcast is brought to you by Hubble, spelt H-U-B-B-L. It fuses streaming and free-to-air TV into a single experience, which means you don't have to go in and out of apps to discover content you'll love. Hubble, it's TV and streaming made easy. Saturday Squeeze is your shortcut to being informed weekend style. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. In Saturday Squeeze this week, Claire, it's Matilda's again, but with a funding theme. And we give a bit of perspective too. We do. Plus, we talk through what happened with those fires, Kate, in Hawaii, uh, the fallout from that. And in what's coming up next, we review the intergenerational report, which is dropping next week. Squeeze recommends we ask for you, Squeezers, to tell us your thoughts on jorts, yes or no. (laughs) So have a think about it as we discuss the news before we get to that. And stay till the end for a sneak preview on how you responded to our survey about The Voice. Claire, the biggest story of the week is still the Matildas. Third week running, Mm. I believe. Someone said somewhere they've captured the nation. I heard that somewhere. Captured the nation indeed. (laughs) Uh, We get so much difficult news all the time, so it's just really nice to have something wholesome and really delightful to grab onto. And it's an event, of course, that's a bit difficult with the loss to England, but of course, on the large, a really good event. On the large, a really good event and a positive conversation. Lots of talk about funding and I guess it really goes to the question of what the legacy of this rather extraordinary Matilda's campaign will be. Yeah, and that discussion has gone from a public holiday, Mm. of course, that we won't get now, uh, through to funding to improve female sports facilities, to talk of broadcast deals. So it's a multi-million dollar question, that one. It really is. So obviously the public holiday, as you say, was proposed by our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. It isn't happening as it was contingent on a win. The commitment from the Federal Coalition leader Peter Dutton to fund grassroots sporting facilities to the tune of $250 million, Claire, will happen if he ever gets elected. That's sort of something that wasn't contingent on a win, I guess. Um, this government funding question, it's a huge part of what keeps the sport train on track, I guess. Yeah, it sure is. And what the Matildas are saying is there's just not enough investment in women's football from the grassroots level up. Yeah, and we've been talking about it being the time for Football Australia to really pounce on this question of funding popularity at a massive high. Jess Halloran, who's the Australian's chief sports reporter, Claire, had a long piece last week about Football Australia and funding. In that, James Johnson, so he's the CEO of Football Australia, will hear his name quite a bit across the coming weeks, I imagine. He says that soccer's received about $300 million in financial support from the federal, state and local governments in the past few years. One third of that has been spent on a new home of the Matildas, a dedicated women's soccer facility that's in Melbourne. More funding, he says, will further help with community facilities. So kind of what Peter Dutton was talking about, funding those grassroots um, facilities for soccer. And then he also wants money to improve high performance facilities for the Matildas. Tony Gustafsson was talking about this. If we want to win a World Cup, we need to invest in those high performance facilities. That's sort of the lay of the land when it comes to funding and what we're kind of talking about when we talk about funding. Also, they want to bring more events to Australia. Yeah. And those big events is what 
brings the cash. And mm. there's been a lot of discussion this week about why netball, for example, isn't being discussed about funding, why other sports aren't. And really a lot of that comes down to the dollars that they can attract and broadcast revenue is a really big part of that. Um, lots of chat as well about us bringing other events like the Men's World Cup potentially in 2034. And look, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Kate, broadcast money big deals, very complicated. So yeah. Optus Sport and Seven West Media are the broadcast partners of the FIFA Women's World Cup. I reckon we all probably know that well and truly Got over that. the last yeah. few weeks. Um, but the rights for the Men's and Women's Asian Cup and also the friendly matches and qualifiers, uh, they sit with Network 10 and the parent company Paramount. That deal is worth $100 million and that ends next year. And I think that's a cue, of course, for James Johnson and his team to hold a lot of media with potential broadcasters, they reckon they've got a really good shot at a big deal, especially off the back of these huge ratings from the Matildas. Interesting to note, Matildas and Socceroos matches outside of World Cup matches are not on the federal government's anti-siphoning list, Claire. Didn't plan to talk about anti-siphoning, but here we go. (laughs) Anti-siphoning, I hope you've had your coffee. So, yeah, and look, twists and turns in all of this, but the anti-siphoning list, it was introduced in the 1990s. It's to stop major sports from disappearing behind those streamers' paywalls Mm. uh, or anyone really like Foxtel or Ozstar or any of those services from locking that content up. So basically it gives our major TV networks first dibs on content that's on on that formal list, um, things like the AFL Grand Final, AFL Round Matches, NRL and Olympics events. They're the sorts of things that are on that list. Yeah, it's rather extensive. Um, the Matildas and Socceroos matches, though, as I said, outside of the World Cup are not on that list. They could end up behind a paywall. Yeah, and what a time to be sitting down and negotiating all of this. Fantastic. Isn't it? It's <laughs> so interesting. And, look, given the sort of changes over the last few decades, you've got to think that that anti-siphoning list is quite antiquated mm. because the way we watch television and consume content is just so very different. Um, anyone who knows sports administration world will know that there's workarounds to a lot of these yeah. sorts of things, but it's just really good to know and I think good to hear because it's going to be in the news a lot. Yeah, if you hear the word anti-siphoning now, you kind of know what we're talking about. By all accounts, Football Australia is expected to sign a new deal before the end of the year. We will keep you posted. Of course, whatever that deal may be, really will be part of the Matildas legacy. What a cliffhanger to leave us on. (laughs) So much more to come. Claire, outside of talking a lot about the Matildas this week, there's been a couple of other big things that have happened, in particular a relevant um, anniversary to talk about. It's the second anniversary of the Taliban's retaking of Kabul. You sort of talked about it in Squiz today a little bit. The country's in a really bad way. It really is. And, yeah, I guess the juxtaposition against this conversation that we're having about how great it is that women's sport is being captured at such a great and grand level uh, in parts of the world, particularly now. Afghanistan, uh, women's rights are just so very curtailed. Uh, The situation in Afghanistan at the moment is girls can't go to high school, women can't go to university, they can't hold jobs. Um, They can be seen in some public places, but that list is quite limited. Um, Certainly, can't go to beauty salons. That's all over. Yeah, so that happened just recently. They closed all the beauty salons. They can work in some parts of the public service, but that's it. And also when they go out and about, they can't, they have to be fully covered up. It's 
just a remarkable change mm. in two years since the Taliban took over. We've got a couple of recommendations of some reading. We both read a long piece by the BBC on what's changed across the last two years, also a podcast if you prefer. Mm. Basically, I mean, the summary is that most women and girls are confined to their homes. Yeah, and it's a reason why the world's leaders haven't recognised the Taliban as the legitimate government. Uh, a big part of that is their position on women and girls. Even China and Russia and the United States agree on that. So uh, it's just a really big anniversary to think two years ago that happened and it's not getting any better. And one we shouldn't forget. It's also 10 days ago since those fires in Maui. We haven't talked about them much at all and definitely not on Saturday squeeze. Um, those fires basically levelled the town of Lahaina. We're talking about this. I, we want to unpick this a little bit because, of course, everyone's heard that it happened, but the details are really something else. Yeah, and both you and I have been to Maui. Mm. Um, I've certainly been to that part. Have you been around to I that have, part yes. of the island? Yeah. yeah. So if you go to the big resorts that are in that sort of part of the island, um, you basically have to go through Lahaina because there's only really one road in and out and the airport is on the other side. Mm. So what happens is you get to Maui, you jump in a car or the shuttle bus to your hotel and you see this whole part of the island that has been burned out. Um, it's just incredible when you see the pictures, exactly what has gone down there. And I guess the other thing to point out is these aren't big population centres. There's not many, many roads in and out. There's sort of one road in and out. There's about 10,000 people in Lahaina. What happened on August the 8th, which is when this fire started, was that high winds brought down power lines. This is what we now know. That started a few fires. That was early morning. By the afternoon, things developed so quickly that the fires became very dangerous by about 4pm in the afternoon. Yeah, and very quickly as well. Yeah. They whipped out from something that was just sort of burning along that they felt like they had under control and then all of a sudden it was very much out of control. Uh, they're investigating, of course, the official cause and they'll talk about that at length. But it looks like from the footage that's now emerging, those power lines coming down, sparking those fires, uh, has been a big contributor. What's happened is... 2,207 structures were damaged or destroyed. 85% of those were homes. Mm. Um, 2,000 acres burned through. It took firefighters until the start of this week to get things under control and there are still fires burning on Maui. The death toll is past 110. Past 110 just keeps going up every single day. 1,000 people are still unaccounted for. There could be many reasons why someone's on that list of 1,000 people, but by all accounts, some of those have lost their lives. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And, of course, that painstaking work of trying to find and then identify remains is just a really dreadful thing to do. It's expected then that there's lots of questions, of course, and the consequences about what happened and why there were so many people in danger. Yeah, the Bidens are visiting uh, the island on Tuesday, our time, so I'm sure there'll be plenty in the news about that. Of course, a place like this, Claire, that's so highly dependent on tourism, there's going to be that tension between rebuilding, encouraging tourists to come back, but ensuring tourism is respectful of the rebuilding effort. It's it's going to be a lot. Yeah, and particularly at the moment where they need all of those resources just to make sure the locals are housed and fed. So sad. Coming up this week, Claire, the intergenerational report will be out on Thursday. It sounds fancy. It is very fancy. <laughs> so uh, governments get a lot of stick for being too short term. What this intergenerational report does is that it takes our economic figures, it takes our current policy settings, and then it zooms it out to 40 years. 40 years is a long time. It's a very long I mean, time. I'm going to be like mid-70s. Yes. <laughs> I'm not even going to think about that. Yeah. Like <laughs> 
But intergenerational <laughs> is the word. Okay. And they, this is released semi-regularly. I'm trying to remember when the last one There's was. There's kind of not a really set schedule for it because okay. sometimes it's been five years, sometimes it's been three years. It kind of goes to the government cycle. Okay. So, of course, we're hitting the midway point, if you can believe it, on the Albanese government So yeah. in this term. So, yeah, it's a good time to for the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, who will release this next week to talk about what it all means. So what it'll do is look at the the demographic, technological, structural trends that may affect the economy, the budget, the nation more broadly. Mm. I mean, how on earth would you do that? I have no idea. Well, particularly around technology. I mean, we've just, like our world has changed, it seems, this year Mm. when we're talking about generative AI and AI more broadly and how you could actually even look at what that means for jobs next year. Was there an intergenerational report 40 years ago? No, so Peter Costello was the first to bring I it in. I thought so, yeah. yeah so it was, it's not like we can go back and look at what the one 40 years ago thought. No, but you could. Like, gosh, there's been a lot of changes even mm. in the last 15 years or so. So there's a, yeah, you probably could give it marks for Maybe predictions. Maybe next week's Saturday Squeeze. We can <laughs> oh, have wow. a look at that. Let's see. What a, what a treat. Let's see. So that's coming up. That'll be news on Thursday. Um, I mean, we've, of course, also got the Women's World Cup. Bronze medal match tonight. The final tomorrow night, England v Spain. Are you backing the palms, Claire? Well, look, I think we can say this time because it's Spain, no way, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going for Spain? Absolutely. Okay. I, I just would love a really close game. I'm really looking forward to it. And, of course, come on, the Matildas. If you've still got some World Cup left in you, the Men's Basketball World Cup starts on Friday. I was reminded about how we all got behind the boomers uh, at the 2020 Olympics, which were actually in 2021. It's all very confusing. Remember, Claire, Patty Mills, they won bronze, their first Olympic medal. Love Patty Mills. Love Patty Mills. He's incredible. There was a great video of him this week as well. He was heading to a friendly game. He had his Courtney Vine top on. He was rocking it. They actually delayed the start of that game so they could watch the Matildas, which was very, very cool. And just to note too, before we move on from World Cups, the Rugby World Cup is coming up. Put that on your roster. It's not next week, but it's coming up the week after. September. I saw them all heading The Wallabies, I feel like, you know, we're just not talking about them much because they're not winning a lot. Eddie but Jones would agree with you. Mm. And um, did you see them in their Akubras? I did. <laughs> I don't know what that was about. There's nothing weirder than dudes <laughs> in new Akubras when they don't come from oh, the bush. But... If anyone hasn't seen that, just give it a quick Google and you'll see what we're talking about. Um, next week also, very important, it's the 170th anniversary of the invention of the potato <laughs> chip. Absolutely my favourite snack, hands down. Well, what Love did I buy you chip. for Christmas? Oh, a huge, that's right. You bought me a huge tin of potato chips. She did. I think actually we might have talked about it. Best on Best present ever. Oh, it was. Oh. <laughs> I was giving myself a pat on the back for that. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Glass of shardy. It's beautiful. Packet of, potato, packet of Smith's original. Oh, oh There you go. Um, if you want to know a bit of history, the potato chip was invented by George Crumb. Which is kind of, I don't know, poetic. Um, and you can go and stay at his home at Saratoga Lake in upstate New York if you would like. <laughs> Sounds really great. I'm putting it on my bucket list of travel to do. Recommends, Claire. It's an anti-recommendation to start. <laughs> so uh, this week news broke that jorts are back in, yeah. jorts being jean shorts. Yeah, and not little jeans shorts, which have been around <laughs> a lot, like the short shorts. No. These are like knee-grazing length and they've got to have a certain shape. They're not particularly tight. They're not like pedal pushes that okay. are, or capri pants. They're just a little bit more voluminous than that. Neither you or I are lengthy in the legs. No. 
So we are anti the George. It's nothing anyone could ever accuse me of being is lengthy in the leg. And we feel that people with long legs are probably supportive of the jort. We are not supportive of the jort, but we're going to actually poll you. Well, look, if you're tall and you can pull it off, as I say regularly, good luck to you. Good luck to you. Um, that's our polling question on Spotify today. If you're listening on Spotify, you can go in there and vote jorts, yay or nay. Yep. Um, long denim skirts are also back, Claire. I quite like a denim skirt. Oh. I've always quite liked a denim skirt. It's a very 90s into early 2000s thing to yeah. like. Um, so I'm quite interested that they're making a comeback. But more broadly, I can't remember the last time I wore a skirt. I don't know if I remember seeing you wear a skirt. I please. used to wear skirts a lot. Okay. Well, yep. a long denim skirt yeah. back in. And I am currently wearing a boiler suit. I so. love boiler suits. I was <laughs> eyeing off your boiler suit before. I don't know. My husband, when I left Is the house, asked thing? if I had a job at the mechanic. <laughs> oh, come on, Sam. Get with the trend. It's great. I love um, it. Thank you. Very comfy. Um, that was our anti-recommendation, though. We actually <laughs> do have a recommendation. It's a little bit Sydney-centric, um, so I apologise for that. But I went to a musical a few years ago, pre-COVID, it was called The Dismissal, which for those who may not know, is an event that happened back in 1975, Claire, in Australian politics, the Governor-General dismissed the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Yes. I kind of feel like we know about this, don't we? Do we have to set up the dismissal for some people might the squizzes. know about the yeah, dismissal. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. I just... Well, to say what it is, yeah. so it was an event that's never happened before and hasn't happened since and some say will never happen again. Um, the Queen's representative here, of course, the Governor-General, dismissing the government of the day. It was so momentous that that scar continues to run really deep. Yeah, if you don't know a lot about it, worth looking into. This musical, Claire, describes itself as an extremely serious musical comedy, which is a very good way to describe it. It was excellent. <laughs> I enjoyed it so much and it's back playing again at the Seymour Theatre in Sydney. If you live in Sydney and you're into politics and you like to be entertained, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I am told they will be announcing a national tour soon. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, really I know good. how, I remember how much you enjoyed it. So, mm. yeah, tickets definitely coming my way for that. Um, I'm delighted for my recommendation to say that Fisk, which yeah. I've watched when it was out on the ABC originally and I've watched the second season as well. It's now on Netflix, the first season. It's doing so well. Apparently. Globally. I saw this. Yeah. It's incredible. So Kitty Flanagan, who directed it, she wrote it, she stars in it. Um, it's a comedy based on a law firm. It specialises in wills and estates. It's hilarious. Um, Fisk, Helen Fisk, is a bit of a disaster, but she's just <laughs> delightfully dry. So it's right down my alley. Yeah, global top ten show. On, the Netflix on Netflix. On Netflix. Did I see Katie Flanagan share that yeah. going, oh, this is just amazing? Well, she's, yeah, she had this great quip about, I'm just waiting for someone to say this is all a big mistake. <laughs> There's actually a new, like, reality show called Frisk. <laughs> <laughs> Where like cops that. come along and meet their love match by patting down people. Oh, Hilarious. the self deprecating yeah, Aussie humor. She's Gotta love it. On to Squiz Press. Claire, we've closed our research survey on The Voice. Thank you to everyone who did that survey. It's like 2,200 people. Squizzes are just the best. We ask them to give us some feedback and they really come to the party. It's fantastic. It's going to be really interesting when we release the full report. A bit of a sneak peek of the findings. 82% of squizzes have made up their mind about how they're going to vote mm. in The Voice referendum at the end of the year. 63% feel well-informed 
or somewhat informed about the issues at play, which is great. Yeah, and look, squizzes are well-informed people. They mm. are interested in news. They sort of self-select as that because they're squizzes. Mm. So uh, I'm not that surprised, but, gee, that's high. That 82% high that they've decided. Yeah. Oh, we, that was quite something to find and, out. And feel informed. Certainly that's not reflected at the national level when it yeah. comes to these things. So well done, squizzes. I think that's awesome. Um, nearly 50% think they know the outcome too and they reckon it's going to be a no. Yeah. That was some, quite something. Of course, we mm. didn't ask people how they would vote, but um, certainly overwhelmingly people think that it, it will be a no. Mm. Um, we're collating all that data, as I said, across the next week, so there will be a full report available to have a read of soon. Claire, go Matildas. Go Matildas. We'll be back next week. <laughs>